Welcome to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast, featuring Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne, discussing hot topics in sports medicine and society. We hope you enjoy our podcast and look forward to hearing from you. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another edition of our UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks with myself, Dr. Nair Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. Um, today, uh, I'll be going solo and talking about uh, care disparities in sports medicine. And I think this is one area that we don't adequately address when we're thinking about sports medicine uh, in general, particularly uh, amongst our residents and fellows, as well as within the general sports medicine community as well, too. And I think a lot of our outcomes have to do with how we're uh, treating patients, particularly from lower socioeconomic status for certain racial and uh, uh, gender groups. And it's important for us to be able to identify this so we can give adequate equitable care um, across the spectrum of patients that we see. So, you know, in, in this 25, 30 minute talk, I'm gonna cover a couple of different things. Number one, uh, give you some basic definitions about uh, healthcare disparities, the current status within the United States about disparities in general, and then really dive deeply into orthopedic surgery and sports medicine. And hopefully uh, through hearing this talk, you can both understand a little bit more about how disparities even affect us in, in something as, as small as sports medicine in terms of the, the pathology that's, that's out there. And then particularly, hopefully give you some strategies and techniques to help prevent these disparities from affecting the care, particularly amongst our young athletes who have a lot to lose if they don't receive the appropriate care. And I think the first thing you have to do is you have to understand the terminology before you can actually create change. And a lot of us understand what healthcare disparities are, but understanding the terminology then helps you understand the research that's there, uh, as well as understand uh, you know, how this research or how this terminology then impacts care based on some of the guidelines that we see. Um, now, in terms of healthcare disparities, we you may think of disparities as simply you know people having difficulty getting important appointments, they have worse outcomes, but it it's not necessarily the way that we all think that it is. Um, the delivery of healthcare is affected by race, ethnicity, it's affected by gender, it's affected by sexual orientation, and it's affected by socioeconomic status. But the impact of this is sometimes hard for physicians or even the general public to understand how does it specifically impact the care that's received um, for patients and their families. And it's essential for clinicians to know that it impacts healthcare outcomes as much as the interventions we do, and sometimes even more so. So even though we think about ACL reconstructions, we think about rotator cuff surgeries, we think about all these different techniques that we utilize, it's important to note that sometimes the disparity actually has a greater impact on their long-term health than actually the surgical technique that we do. And if you kind of break it down to kind of two large groupings, disparity impacts the health of the individual as well as the health care of the individual. And I think that's an important distinction to understand. So when you define what the health of individual is, it's when a higher burden of disability is incurred by one group compared to another. That's a global health of the individual and how disparity affects it. When you think of the health care of the individual, it's differences in access to care or quality of care that cannot be explained by other factors. So it's important to understand how disparity affects both the health as well as the health care of the overall individual. Now, when we look at orthopedic surgery as a, as a specialty, I think it's important for us to all look into ourselves and say, how are we critically doing? We may individually think that we're doing a good job, but how does our specialty as a whole do? And how do we then implement that into our practice, which is the important thing? We're very good at identifying them, but then are we willing to make the changes to our practice, even if it means more work on our end, to actually you know, affect these disparities uh, from actually affecting the care. And there was a study that was actually in the Journal of Racial and Ethnic Health Care Disparities that basically was titled Perspectives of Orthopedic Surgeons on Racial Ethnic Disparities in Care. 
And what they actually found, not surprisingly, that awareness regarding racial ethnic disparities in musculoskeletal care is low amongst orthopedic surgeons. In addition, respondents basically felt that it wasn't their practice that had the problem, it was actually other people's practice that had the problem. And then they basically concluded that increasing diversity, research and education may help improve knowledge of this problem, but it's something that needs to start even at the level before medical school and undergrad, but even at our lower educational levels um, to really get people to think about disparities and how it impacts the world uh, at a young age. If we actually look at further at, at this study as well too, it said that 35% believe that diversification of the orthopedic workforce would be a very effective strategy in addressing disparities, while 25% felt that research would be effective and 24% believed that surgeon education would be very effective. So, you know, even though a lot of people feel that there are changes that need to be made, they don't, aren't necessarily identifying what critical areas those changes can be made. They identify the problem, but not willing to actually make changes. Now, in terms of defining the terminology, how do orthopedic surgeons do in terms of defining what disparities are and how does it affect it? Really, really bad. I mean, we can see this from the literature. And a lot of this has to do with who actually is in our specialty. And if you actually look at specialties across the spectrum in medicine, if you look at pediatricians, which have the highest you know, gender breakdown, we'd say 56% women, 44% men. Orthopedic surgery is the worst. It's 7% male, uh, excuse me, 7% female, 93% male. And if you look at racial breakdown as well, too, it's very white Caucasian male, um, which you know plays a large role in, in kind of driving how disparities are basically interpreted and seen within our workforce. If you actually look at orthopedic surgeon self-reported gender, um, if over the you know over the past ten years, if you look at overall you know individuals of color from underrepresented backgrounds, the general orthopedic surgery is somewhere between two to three percent every year, and that hasn't necessarily improved drastically over the past five years. Even if even if, as we've understood how uh, disparity is uh, is a problem and increasing diversity, of the workforce is really really necessary. Even if you look at residents right now, it, the same sort of background is there. There's not like a huge generation of underrepresented minorities or females who are willing to take up the reins and improve the numbers. Uh, we simply just haven't done a good jo job at increasing diversity. And a lot of that goes down to the medical school level as well as the undergraduate level of showing individuals that this is a field that they can go into and will be welcome and can create change. Now, if you actually look at the literature on how this impacts care at the patient level. There's a great review that was done um, by Schoenfeld et al. that found that patients from racial and ethnic minority populations are at increased risk of complications and or mortality following orthopedic procedures. Um, and even though there's more need for other evidence in other fields, um, studies specific to how care impacts certain racial and economic groups is necessary, but we do know for sure that their complications and mortality stratified based on race and socioeconomic status, even when you control for other factors. And it's also important to note that in intertwined with this is that race impacts insurance, that even though race in and of itself is a, a factor for poor outcomes uh, in orthopedics, that also impacts the insurance that necessarily being obtained. And if you're white in this country, you only have about a 13% chance of being uninsured. Whereas if you look at the Hispanic population or the African-American population, those numbers are between 20 to 30%. So it's not just race alone, it's also the ability to get insurance and that insurance then also impacts care as well too. And the way that insurance impacts care is access to care in terms of how easily you're able to get appointments, how easily you're able to get in and how quickly you're able to get in. And from an orthopedic standpoint, particularly sports medicine, how quickly you get in can definitely impact disability, joint degeneration and ability to get back to work. 
The other factor as well too is immigration status as well too. Um, one thing that particularly over the past four to five years that we've seen is that a lot of people who may have immigration status, which um, can impact their ability or comfort with uh, obtaining care, uh, impacts as well too. So you know, if an individual who may be undocumented or is less willing to go to the hospital for fear of deportation, that can impact it as well too, particularly in an orthopedic setting where there's an acute intervention needed rather than a five to 10 year global, you know, more global problem that could potentially be managed uh, remotely where you actually physically need to go into the hospital. And there's a fear of, uh, of immigration status being revealed and then subsequently leading to uh, worse outcomes due to delays in cares. So we all know these things. We all know that this is a problem, but why are these, um, why are these occurring? And the reasons are multifactorial. I think a lot of this has to do with implicit bias, and we've heard multiple talks on this. Um, and implicit bias refers to the attitudes or stereotypes that affect our understanding, actions, and decisions in an unconscious manner. Rather, implicit biases are not accessible through introspection. It's not something you can necessarily think about, but it's something that's happening over a period of time. And if you kind of make it a little bit more granular, implicit biases are attitudes, stereotypes, and beliefs that affect how we treat others. An implicit bias is not intentional, but it can still impact how we judge others based on factors such as race, ability, gender, culture, and language. And in healthcare, it basically affects our ability to basically deliver care, particularly in orthopedic surgery. We may make certain decisions about what surgery to offer, whether you're going to get surgical treatment or non-surgical treatment, when, how aggressive you are in terms of dealing complications, or what exactly specific procedure you're going to do, and that basically then leads to disparities in healthcare. So what should we do as providers to basically deal with this? Well, number one, we have to understand how this impacts access to care, how it impacts quality and outcome of care, and then we have to promote provider diversity. So we look at access to care. There's extensive primary care literature that looks at how um, disparities impact access to care. There are multiple mechanisms in place to access the primary care physician, but subspecialty care exacerbates the problem. And orthopedics is a prime example that you can get primary care through multiple different levels through community clinics, but for accessing subspecialty care, it becomes much, much more complicated, particularly for orthopedics. Another uh, access to care issue goes through insurance status as well too. And for patients who are publicly insured, its scheduling is much more complex. Also there are large variations in reimbursement. So that limits the number of special, subspecialty providers who can actually accept public health plans. And these treatment delays lead to poor outcomes. And that's been shown for rotator cuff pathology, hand flexor tendon injuries, as well as knee arthroplasty. Race also impacts access to care, and there's variability in providers offering care to minority populations, and that can be both implicit and explicit bias. There are difference in patients' attitude and expectations. There are socioeconomic barriers that are tied to race and ethnicity, and the lack of patient-centered care and out understanding of race and ethnic-specific outcomes can limit the ability for providers to provide sensitive care, as well as language barriers as well, too. And this has been shown in spinal stenosis, total knee arthroplasty, total shoulder arthroplasty, shoulder injury, um, as well as uh, other forms of arthroplasty as well too. And as, uh, as well, access to care is affected too by gender. There's a limited examination of gender in the literature, which number one is a problem. And number two, the lack of workforce diversity, particularly in orthopedic surgery, especially gender impacts patient comfort with care. And this also occur has occurred in lumbar spinal stenosis, arthroplasty, shoulder injuries, and other uh, arthroplasty options as well too. And that's another factor that we don't talk about as much. We talk about a lot of gender in terms of our workforce diversity, but then it impacts the care that we receive based on gender later down the road. Now, the next facet we need to understand is understanding the quality and outcome of care um, in terms of uh, how disparities manifest themselves. If we look at spine surgery, there are definitely worse outcomes when you look at um, race, socioeconomic status, and, and gender. We see it as well in total joint arthroplasty, 
we see in hip fracture patients. And sports medicine has a problem as well too. And that's where we're gonna concentrate the second half of this talk on is understanding that sports medicine has an issue with disparities impacting care, particularly in terms of delay and treatment options. And it occurs at a various different levels and various different pathologies. We see in uh, the treatment of anterior cruciate ligament injuries. We see in the treatment of meniscus injuries. We see in the treatment of rotator cuff injuries as well as shoulder instability. Now, I think the first area we need to concentrate on is ACL injuries. And there's actually a tremendous amount of data in terms of how insurance status and race affects the treatment of pediatric ACL injuries. And the reason why pediatric ACL injuries I think are so important is that sports as we're seeing now during COVID are a tremendous lifeline for the mental health of children, as well as their impacts their ability to be healthy as adults. And if kids are 10, 12, 13, 14, and they have an injury that leads a generation that then subsequently then impacts their health as an adult, whether it be increased rates of cardiovascular disease, uh, worsened mental health, and less chance to actually be active, which leads to all those positive downstream effects, as well as that impacts the next generation of kids if they don't have adults who are active. There was a study done by Patel et al. Uh, out of CHLA, which actually found that uh, publicly insured pediatric ACL patients were more likely to have treatment delays, meniscus injury, and postoperative stiffness. Another study that was done by Newman et al. Uh, out of the Children's Hospital in Colorado found that publicly insured or patients who had lower mean household incomes had significant, almost a 2.3 two, two month more delay in treatment, which subsequently then can lead to increased meniscal injury, uh, increased degeneration, and inability to get back to sporting activity in a timely fashion. And even if you look at race and socioeconomic status in pediatric ACL injuries, and this was a study done by Bram et al. out of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, they found that Black and Hispanic patients, as well as publicly insured patients, had treatment delays, had more severe meniscus tears at the time of surgery, had less PT visits, and had greater residual hamstring and quad weakness at nine months after surgery. So once again, you can see even in this very specific pathology, how treatment delays poor outcomes, less physical therapy visits can particularly impact our young patients who are trying to get back uh, to be active from an injury that is traumatic even to begin with, with a high retear rate. Um, and if you look at this, yeah, even from a, uh, you know, uh, access standpoint, there's a study that was done by Pierce et al. out of Cincinnati Children's, where they looked at basically adolescent ACL injuries, looked at patients who had Medicaid versus private insurance. And they basically called up these offices, cold called them and find how quickly they could get appointments. And when they called of, of these orthopedic practices, 38 out of 42 offered privately insured patients and the, the kind of the, um, the patient in the, the phone script was a 14 year old uh, ACL patient and they found that if you had private insurance, 38 out of 42 of them offered an appointment within two weeks, while only six of the 42 offered the Medicaid patients such an appointment. And that's tremendous. I mean, Medicaid patients, their ACL is the same whether you have uh, uh, private insurance or public insurance, but the significant degeneration that occurs delay in treatment and then the cost of the healthcare system are so much more tremendous when there's delay in cares. We also did a study here as well too um, with uh, Dr. Kana and Dr. Jangala. Um, that was published looking at time from ACL tear to reconstruction of privately and publicly insured patients. And we actually found that publicly insured patients had to uh, increase delays in treatment and secondary injury. And there was a significant amount of time loss when you look at where the delays actually occurred. We found that patients with private insurance were more able to obtain an MRI diagnosis nearly 50% faster after injury. They found that time from injury to ACL reconstruction was approximately one month shorter for privately insured patients. We found that medial meniscus tears and chondral injuries were more common in publicly insured patients and lateral meniscus repairs were more prevalent in publicly insured patients. So just basically demonstrating that meniscal and chondral injuries were worse in patients who basically had greater delays in treatment um, based on their insurance status. And we also see this in the adult patient population as well too, where patients who have public insurance who have ACL injuries have greater delays in treatment. 
We also see this in meniscal tears as well too. Um, there was a great study that looked at 32,000 uh, patients and they found that females, um, non-white patients and patients who are publicly insured or self-pay were associated with lower rates of meniscus surgery. They're more likely to treat it, be treated non-operatively and basically told that their meniscus didn't need surgery and they subsequently then had degeneration. Even when you look at young patients, um, particularly children and adolescents, pediatric patients, and college-age patients. There's a study done by Johnson all out of Texas that found that public and uninsured young patients experienced severe treatment delays, which is critical for meniscus injuries where the time to treatment can drastically impact care. And even when you look at really severe injuries, such as bucket handle meniscus tears, they found that uninsured patients have a greater time to surgery, simply because of the authorization process, the difficulty with finding a place to actually get the surgery done, and then subsequently then uh, in terms of how quickly someone's willing to get them in their schedule uh, based on uh, their insurance status. And we see this in rotator cuff injuries as well too. Um, there's a study by Lee et al. Um, out of Brown University that found that patients who had lower socioeconomic status, public insurance or low income zip codes were treated more often at low volume facilities by low volume surgeons, rather than going to high volume academic centers or even high volume private practices where they do a lot of rotator cuff surgery. So it's not even their ability to access care, but then actually who is operating on them based on their insurance status uh, drastically impacts their care. And we know for pathologies such as rotator cuff surgery, uh, you know, arthroplasty, et cetera, that high volume surgeons have better outcomes. You also see this at the appointment level as well too. Um, there was another study that looked at um, how quickly patients um, got appointments for rotator cuff injury and they found that patients with private insurance were given more rapid first appointments and had more facilities available to them. They had facilities closer to the home which subsequently affects their ability to access PT and make their follow-up appointments. And once again, just like with ACL tears, when uh, individuals were cold called with a rotator cuff tear, uh, and this was done out in North Carolina, they found that uh, they basically looked at 71 practices, 72% of them offered a patient with a Medicaid appointment, um, whereas 96% uh, offered the patient with private insurance appointments. So once again, 20 to 30% differential uh, simply based on insurance status when uh, these practices were cold called. And finally, we also see this in shoulder instability as well, too. We find that access is more difficult with Medicaid patients. Uh, patients with Medicaid have significantly more delayed care. And as a result of delayed care with shoulder instability, they have more extensive histories of instability. They are more likely to have severe bone loss and require more invasive stabilization procedures where they go from an arthroscopic procedure to necessarily an open procedure due to the fact they've dislocated seven, eight, nine times uh, before they actually um, get treatment. We also saw this in the pediatric adolescent population. Um, Myself and a couple of our medical students uh, did a study looking at uh, how does insurance status predict the development of bony bank art and engaging hill sacs lesions. We found just like with our ACL study that there were significant delays in care based on insurance status. Um, and that led to uh, higher rates of redislocation, higher rate of bony injuries and generally decreased outcomes if you had public insurance. Now we know very clearly that how this impacts care and poor outcomes, but it's also important to note that sports medicine is one of those few specialties that kind of has a broad base of individuals who are involved in it. We have athletic trainers, we have physical therapists, uh, we have performance uh, coaches, we have uh, physicians, we have PAs, operative and non-operative specialists, primary care uh, providers. So it's much more complex. And even if when you look at you know, other providers beyond just the, the surgeons, we find that even at the athletic training level or at the physical therapist level, that even in perception of pain or how they essentially treat patients, there's a disparity over there. And there was a study that was done out of several colleges that actually found that there was unequal treatment even in the athletic training room based on race in terms of perception of pain and how aggressively they were treated at the athletic training level uh, compared to, um, compared to you know, other, other patients based on race. 
I feel that where we also see a lot of disparity as well, too, is in terms of pediatric sports participation. And I think that if kids aren't able to actually participate in youth sports, then that can also impact their care. So not even from an injury perspective, but looking at sports from another perspective in terms of disparities and particularly barriers in terms of access to participation. We know currently right now that there are 5.5 million children in in-school sports and 30 million children in out-of-school sports. And this rise has occurred with a concurrent drop in school-based PE with only 29% of all high school students participating in daily classes. So you have to think about that. Who basically has access to sports then? If you have school-based options, particularly during COVID, not, uh, not basically existing, but then you have all these private sports existing, which group of kids are actually able to be active? Well, it's the kids who can actually afford the ability to pray with private sports. If you don't have the school-based options or you don't have community-based options, what happens? Then basically have all these kids playing private sports whose parents can afford it. And then you have a whole other group of kids who may be in lower income households or maybe in communities that don't have options for sports. And then they subsequently then have more issues in terms of being healthy and active. And on, a cons on the other side, which is a whole other talk, this group of kids who just have access to club sports are getting injured and they're taking away resources from the healthcare system as well too, in terms of costs and time off of school and, and, and eating up surgical time as well too. So I think it's, it's a very difficult problem. And a lot of this has to do with single sport specialization is the fact that now we have a culture now where kids are felt and parents and coaches feel this anxiety basically to play one sport. Well, the problem is that the people who can actually play one sport are those who can afford to do it and then there aren't options for other kids who don't necessarily have the means to play the club sports and there aren't there isn't basically a three sport option for them and therefore they can't actually be very physical physically active and this is all intertwined with money youth sports is a 15 billion dollar industry um, and whenever you get money involved with it and you basically have athletic athletic participation based on income it's just going to be this 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 basically roller coaster that keeps going when the youth sports opportunities are controlled based on money, the people who can play can then subsequently get the opportunities. And then you have a whole group of kids who are left out from participating. And there was a great study done by TD Ameritrade that found that 63% of parents will pay between $100 to $500 per month with nearly 20% paying upwards of 12,000 a year. It's important to note that the cost per year of how much these parents are actually paying is more than the average scholarship amount. And it doesn't account for the expenses from injuries. So we're excluding a whole group of kids from actually playing um, while um, they're actually not getting that money, which is necessary for them to actually be involved in sporting activities. Now, if you actually look at who's actually getting scholarships and where uh, they're actually going from, you'd assume that perhaps scholarships can sometimes bridge the gap between who is and who is not actually getting um, getting to go to the next level. And there was a great study in Undefeated um, that actually looked at the gentrification of college hoops, and they found that college athletic scholarships are more likely to be going to patients who had higher socioeconomic status than the average student, less likely to be first-generation college students. And the reason why this happens, if you think about it, is that in order to get a college scholarship, you have to be, you have to, college coaches need to see you. And the, a lot of these college coaches are looking at these club sport events. They're not going to the high school events where you're playing for your school. How do you get to these club events? How do you get to these showcases? You have to have the money to be able to actually play club sports. And if you don't actually have the money, these college coaches aren't going to give you a scholarship. So in kind of a weird, twisted way, scholarships were designed to basically allow patients or athletes from low-income areas to actually get to the next level are not going to upper and middle-class students because they're able actually to afford to go to these showcases. So we're actually doing a disservice in terms of getting a lot of kids who may be from lower socioeconomic backgrounds or disadvantaged backgrounds to college simply because sports costs a lot of money for them. And this was further shown by the Aspen Institute, and they have a great um, 
website called Project Play, where they found that only 34.6% of children between the ages of 6 to 12 and families who make under $25,000 a year participate in team sports, whereas those with incomes greater than 100000 a year um, had 68.4% participate. This is also shown by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation as well, too, where they found that only 25% of middle and high school students from lower income areas participate in youth sports due to fees, transportation, and equipment costs. So I think it's important to recognize that we have a whole group of students who are simply just don't have athletic outlets right now, and their participation in sports is dropping. This is even talking about the injury risk they entail. I also think from another level as well, too, what we're seeing is that in these schools where um, these kids aren't having access to basically play sports. They're also having issues in terms of who they have access to in terms of determining their medical care. We know how all the disparities based on insurance status and race and socioeconomic status. But the other aspect as well too is a lot of these schools and communities where they have lower mean household incomes don't have access to athletic trainers. And athletic trainers are a great gateway into the medical system and do a lot more than just simply treat injuries. They help to advocate for our patients. They help to help navigate a lot of these kids who may not necessarily have people at home that can help them. And a lot of these schools in low-income areas don't have athletic trainers. And that then subsequently impacts their ability to be treated for their injuries, impacts their ability to be actually be diagnosed with a concussion, et cetera. So I think a lot of these things trickle down at a, at a multi-system level in terms of how these youth athletes experience disparities in both the care they receive when they injured and their opportunity to play sport, which is important for their overall health. So I think finally, in conclusion here, how do we help these, these communities uh, you know, improve their disparities or improve disparities in general in orthopedic surgery and sports medicine? I think number one, we have to recognize that disparities exist within our subspecialty via familiarity with the literature. You have to read it and you have to take the time to uh, look at it. You have to provide care that is patient-centered and culturally competent. You have to understand the effect of factors such as race, sex, and insurance, socioeconomic status on access and outcomes. You can use resources such as the American Medical Association Health Disparities Toolkit to recognize your own knowledge, assumption, and implicit explicit biases about your patients. I think it's important to have some self-introspection. And even though you may think that you know everything about a topic or you recognize disparities, to really recognize where your blind spots are. It's important to train staff and fellow physicians in your group through cultural competency trainings, which we're doing here at UCSF. Emphasize the preconceived notions of minority patients can negatively affect their interaction with the healthcare system, both through access and outcomes. You have to ensure the language isn't a barrier and make sure that patients can obtain care through the availability of language translators. You want to provide and or create patient education materials, which not only account for different ethnic, racial, socioeconomic perspectives, but also are sensitive to those perspectives so that you can so that increased trust and knowledge can be gained. And you want to support even volunteer initiatives that advocate for workforce diversity, such as increasing underrepresented students in medical school and in subspecialties, such as the Gladden Orthopedic Society and the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society. But I also think it's important for students of color, for students who come from um, lower socioeconomic backgrounds, is that you don't necessarily need to be involved in sports medicine or orthopedics through a physician-based pathway. You can become an athletic trainer. You can become a physical therapist. You can become a, a performance coach. You can go into sports media. There are different ways you can be involved in in sports medicine, orthopedics in general. And I think when you do go out and practice, it's important to make a commitment to see patients with public insurance and or no insurance by working not only with your group, but also with hospitals um, and the larger healthcare system. It's also important to work with primary care providers and or community health centers to enhance coordination of care. Because a lot of the issues that patients from certain backgrounds may have is basically accessing subspecialty care. So talking with the primary care providers or those clinics to figure out how can we make access a lot easier for certain patients. I think it's also important in your individual practice, collect data on race, ethnicity, and payer mix to see whether there are individual practice patterns that you can change to improve access and outcomes. Because even though you may feel that you're actually doing a great job, you may see a certain area where you need to improve or certain communities where you need to improve or do outreach so they can come to your clinic. 
And from a larger community perspective, we have to ensure that finances are not a barrier to sports participation for rec by encouraging recreational youth programs. Our young kids, the greatest benefit they can have is be active, which can then improves their outcomes later down the road and also makes them have greater mental health and greater overall happiness with life and participation in general. So if you can work to support community programs, help those schools to develop programs, volunteer to coach, et cetera, I think that's really, really important. And the combination of those various things can help you then impact the disparities we see not only in healthcare or orthopedic surgery, but in sports medicine in general. Thank you for joining me and I hope you enjoy our podcast uh, six to eight weeks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast featuring Dr. Mira Bundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. We look forward to hearing your feedback and hope you look forward to our next episode. Thank you.